Um, good morning. Um, just wanted to welcome you again to um, Watershed. If you know about or are connected with us through Facebook or anything, you know that this week we had a had several exciting advancements. One of those being um, the website. We have it newly designed with um, content. And so I, I like to think that it looks a lot more professional, a little better than it does. And so um, it's just an exciting time to, to see that happening as well. And also we have, um, we created a, a mobile app. So on your phone, there's a, a watershed app that you can have to follow along with all the information, get connected. And then if you've already done that, there is a a new feature that we added last night where it has sermon notes that are linked within the app so that you can follow along with the sermons in real time. You can take notes and everything. So you can, you can download that real quick if you haven't had that so that you can follow along and, and, and do that real quick or just know that in the future we'll try to do that. A little side with that is those notes are written in there a little differently than I think through my sermon as far as my notes. And so if something changes in there, don't, don't waste time trying to figure out where I am in the notes. There's a good chance I just switched how I was going to say something or I did it differently. So that way you're not lost in thinking the notes or the everything is going to be exact. I might have changed some of that. But it's, for the most part, it's a good way to catch up on where we are and to stay engaged in that conversation. As we start today, we're going to be in Genesis 18. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis 18. We're, we're continuing the series talking about the life of Abraham. And we're purposeful in this because last spring we took some time to look through who Jesus was based on the Gospel of Luke and then Luke's account through Acts. And to see who Jesus was, to get a foundation, understand who he was as a person. And then now we've gone back to the beginning, back to this covenant relationship that God had with Abraham so that we can then get a foundation of what has God been doing throughout redemptive history, starting with this covenant that he made with Abraham. And we're doing both of those purposely so that in a few weeks we're going to start our new series for the next year, which will be through Romans. And so we thought it was important to have a good grasp and understanding of who Christ is, how he's presented to us, but then also what has God been doing through the life of Abraham and, and that covenant within Abraham so that then we can then dive into the, the beauty and just the depth of doctrine that we have in Paul's letter to the Romans. And so that's where we are in Genesis 18 today. And typically we don't read a lot because I get that sometimes when you read a longer passage, it gets kind of dull or you get lost and maybe there's so much happening. But today we're going to read the whole chapter of Genesis 18. And it might seem kind of crazy. It's 33 verses. It's a little long. But I think if we don't approach it that way and read all of it at one time, we'll lose part of the context and what's actually happening within this text so I'm going to read the whole thing and just, just know that it's a, a little more extended than we typically do, but I think it'll pay dividends as we work through it to get the whole story. So in Genesis chapter 18, verse 1, it says, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent. In the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them... He ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you've said. And Abram went quickly to the tent 
into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to the young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk to the calf of, and the calf to the, that he had prepared and he set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of woman had ceased to be with her, to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. And about this time next year, Sarah will have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Then in verse 16, it continues and says, Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. The Lord said, Because of the great outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood still before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Who am I but dust and ash? Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, not let the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there, he answered. I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there, he answered. For the sake of twenty I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there, he answered. For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. If you will, follow along with me as I um, ask the Spirit to guide us through our time today. Father God, we thank you that you have given us your truth. God, that you inspired men to write down your word and your truth so that we can have it. That we have access to knowledge through your truth, through your spirit, and making it active and alive. God, I just pray that, that your truth would impact our hearts today so that it might affect a change in our lives that's visible to those that we live around so that they can see the difference and ask why that difference is there. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
And so as you look at a, a chapter like this, there's a, there's a lot of interesting things. It's kind of hard, at, 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 kind of towards the end. It's just kind of this repeated process of going on. But, but when we look at a chapter like this, we have to ask ourselves to kind of set up our, our hearts in this and, and, and ask ourselves, or, and you can ask yourself, that, that do you believe that God is limited in how he can influence your life? Do you believe that God is limited in how he can influence your life? Or, or maybe it's maybe you feel like he's limited in how he can influence other people, that there's been other people that you've seen that, that seek him or that, that want to know him. And it's like that nothing happens. Like for some reason, there's limitation to how God can actually work in our lives today. Do you believe that is true? Maybe you feel alone and there's been times where you felt like you really needed God, that something was happening and that, that for some reason it doesn't change. And so is the change as a result to you believing that he can't do that because he's limited by that? And so how you answer that question, how you go about focus on that is what actually people will see within your walk of Christianity. That if you are a believer and you somehow answer that question that God is limited, then, then the way you live your Christian life is going to be limited down to that level as well. And so that answer is very revealing in how you live your Christian life. It's going to reveal how you feel about your giving as part of Christianity. It's going to affect how you view how you should serve and, and how you should do ministry within your Christian life. And, and really what we need to understand is that our personal witness is very important. That, that even in a room like this, we kind of see that we're the small small church, the small kind of insignificant, seemingly in the whole world, we're insignificant, but we matter to God. And, and Warren Wiersbe comments on this when he says that your personal witness today is important to God no matter how insignificant you feel. And that's a truth that we need to remember, that, that God, God is, it's important to God that we live our witness to him. And so as we live our witness, we're going to display what we believe about God. Do we think that he is capable of doing what he says he's going to do? Is he a good, righteous, holy God that loves his people? We're going to display how we land in that by the way we live our lives. And that's exactly what we see in Genesis 18. We get a picture of aspects of the Christian life, some aspects of the Christian life that should be visible in the Christian life. And we get that through Abraham's role in Genesis 18. What we see in his life, we see aspects that we should display as well, namely his love for others. We see it an aspect of his Christian life as a love for others. We see leadership within his home and then ultimately see that he laments for the lost. And we need to look at all of those aspects because when we see Abraham as the model of our faith, how to live, we need to understand that those aspects that he had, his love, his leadership, and the lament for the lost is actually going to need to be present in our lives if we're going to live the Christian life that we need. And so first, we want to look at his love for others. And, and to do that, when we look at these first eight verses of this chapter, to, to kind of set our mind in the right place as we look at his love for other people, you need to ask yourself, how do you view other people? And, and how do you view other people? Are you, do you, are you the type of person that maybe you're outside your house and someone's walking up and all of a sudden you see them and you start, you, you kind of hide from them. So you see someone walking up or they're walking down the street or something, you're outside and then all of a sudden you look and you're like, oh, well, I need to go do this in my garage. And so you kind of hide from them. You, you do the, the Walmart trick where you try not to make eye contact with them. So you kind of avoid or you withdraw from them. Um, sometimes if you're outside with your spouse 
or, or someone else that, that maybe they're more outgoing. And so you kind of withdraw and kind of leave them with these people that are walking up. And, and sometimes you might avoid altogether. Not that you distract yourself with things that you need to do or withdraw and let other people engage, but sometimes maybe it's the fact that you just flat out avoid. And when you see something happening, you, you just completely withdraw and you go inside. You avoid any contact at all. You see, there's also another way where it's not like a negative thing, but you use those people. When people come in, you dominate the conversation. If they just show up and you're outside and you view those other people as a, a way to talk about yourself, a way to tell your own story. But what we see in Abraham and what we need to understand is the first aspect of the Christian life should be love for others as shown in our hospitality towards them. Now, that's exactly what we see modeled here. And actually, this part of Abraham is used time and time again to talk about hospitality. It's actually um, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 2, if I remember correctly, is where he talks about this is the, the mark of hospitality. And in contrast that, next week we're in Genesis 19 with Lot. But we see first that Abraham was prepared. If you look at verse 1 again. So the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. Now remember, Mamre, this is talking about the life of abundance. That's what the place is, a place of abundance. And so when, Mo, and when Abraham here is living this life, remember he just got the promise again, just received the sign of the covenant, the circumcision. And so he's living in this place of abundance, this abundance through Christ and through the relationship with God and this promise that he was given. He's in this time of abundance, but where do we find him? He was sitting at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. And, and really, so when we find ourselves right now, if you're going to be sitting outside, you're, you're not going to pick the heat of the day, right? There's about an hour that we have right now that you really can comfortably sit outside. But he's sitting here at the door of his tent in the heat of the day because he is being prepared for hospitality. He is positioning himself for purposeful use and exposition of hospitality toward other people. He was simply waiting for someone to show up. He didn't have plans with anyone. He didn't know anything was going to happen, but he was going to position himself at the tent of the door of the tent so that he could purposely do something when people showed up. He was pushed into hospitality by his love for other people. His positioning was purposeful so that he could then act. And that's the, the other thing that we see in this is that he was, he was in positioned to have purposeful hospitality, but he was also positioned to be able to do it. And if you look at verse two, it says that he lifted his eyes and looked and behold, three men were standing in front of him. So these three men, we, we identify them later as it's the Lord and then two angels that, that we see and that'll work out more in, in, in chapter 19 when we see what's kind of happening with that. But he didn't know they were coming so he looks up, he sees them and when he sees them, what does he do? He ran from the tent door to meet them. So he doesn't just wait for them. He was at the tent door, positioned purposefully, but willing to act. He ran to them. So his posture was perfect for his response to show hospitality towards these three men that were coming. And so what we need to understand that what you need to realize about hospitality is that hospitality requires you to be ready and willing. You can't be ready to, to display hospitality or show hospitality if you're not willing to do it. And you can't be willing if you're not ready. They both have to go in there. Hospitality requires us to be ready and willing. And when we look at things like that, oftentimes we, we get this idea that, well, I wasn't ready. Like that, that they want something and, and I can't provide that. But, but really that excuse is thrown out when we look at actually how Abraham served them well and displayed hospitality. If you look at verse 4, 
in the rest of those, those verses, we see what he did. He said, let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves while I bring a morsel of bread. And then down in verse six, we actually see what happens. It says, and Abraham went quickly to Sarah and as quick, three seahs of fine flour. Now, right there, we need to understand that, that seahs, if I remember correctly, that's like seven liters of flour. That's a lot of bread. So he gets a lot of bread, make sure we have plenty. And then he goes and he has someone kill the calf. And then he brings milk and cheese. And so when we look at all of that, we realize that what he did in showing hospitality was just invite them into a normal rhythm of his life. There wasn't anything special and spectacular about that. And so we need to realize that our hospitality that we show doesn't have to be extravagant over the top. It just has to be done. We just have to be purposeful and ready and willing to do it. And also on the flip side, when you go to someone's house, you shouldn't expect this extravagant thing. You should just expect to be welcomed in as family into the normal rhythms of life. And so what does he do? He get water for their feet. He washed so they could wash their feet. Remember, this is a desert. Their feet would have been nasty. And actually, this is what Jesus, the Lord, later in, in Luke chapter 7, is what he, what he calls Simon out on when he says, that you didn't give me any water and here this girl has washed my feet with her tears. It was just a normal thing that you did. You offered, if you're showing hospitality, you offered water for their feet. He got Sarah to break bread or to bake a lot of bread. He wanted to have bread. He had a servant kill the choice calf. So just go get some meat. And he brought the milk and cheese. And so these are all normal aspects of his life that he used to display hospitality. And we should all learn something from that, that we just have to be ready and willing to show hospitality. And the other thing that we need to understand is that it wasn't just him that was doing this. It wasn't just him that was showing hospitality, but he included others in his household. He had Sarah bake the bread. That wasn't a commanding her because that's what she was supposed to do, but he invited her to show hospitality along with him as a member of his household. And then he gets a servant to prepare the calf. Likely he had other servants helping with the milk and the cheese to bring that in. And so hospitality is a household event. And so we see that and we should then apply that. If you have children, you should be teaching your children how to be hospitable now so that when they're older, their whole life has been spent of extending hospitality, being positioned purposefully to show hospitality, ready and willing to do that when others come in. And so we can train our children because children need training this because they're selfish by nature. That they want their stuff, but we can train them to be hospitable and to, to serve others when they come into our houses. And what an amazing thing it would be if we would train our children to serve and to show hospitality out of a love for other people. And so we can teach our children by being hospitable ourselves, but also including them in this event of loving others through opening our homes and being hospitable, even if they just show up and it's frustrating and you, you had something else going on or there was something going on in your life and it's just really the wrong time. We don't, we don't get to have this negative aspect and say, well, you know what? This wasn't a good time for me. When people show up, we should celebrate that. We should love them well by showing them hospitality. Abraham served the normal rhythms of life and so we're always prepared to be hospitable. We're always prepared to show hospitality and extend love for others through extending hospitality to them and welcoming them in to the normal rhythms of our lives. And so are you prepared for that? Do you view other people in a way through a lens of love so when they come in, you're gonna show them hospitality? 
that you're going to extend that and that aspect of the Christian life will be present in your life and they will know that, that they can come over. They know that it's a safe place because you're going to welcome them in. You're going to extend love for them. You're going to provide for them. You show hospitality to them. And then ultimately, you're going you're to kind of send them on their way. If you look down in verse 16, it says the men set out from there and they look down towards Sodom. So the two angels, they go forward. We'll talk about them more in, in chapter 19 as they're the ones that um, Lot welcomes in. And then, but what does Abraham do? Abraham went and set them on their way. So they're going. The three men are going. They split up a little later, but Abraham's going with them. He's walking them. So if you have someone that comes to your house, when they're, when they're leaving, actually see them out the door. Actually walk, to the, walk them out to their car. Make a, make a concerted effort to go and say, you know what, we're glad that you were here. We're going to walk you out. We're going to go with you. We love you enough to provide for you, but also to see you off, to know that, that you're going from us. And so do you display the love because you're prepared to show hospitality to those who just show up. Next, we see an aspect of the Christian life and we see not only does Abraham love others by being hospitable and being actually the the example of hospitality that we see, but also we see a leadership in his house and it's kind of interesting. We look at verses nine through 15, what's actually happening within Abraham's household. It's odd that we might say that it's leadership in his house because in verse nine through 15, Abraham has no actions. We don't actually see him doing anything specifically then, but to see his leadership at home, we need to look at Sarah's heart. We need to look at his wife's response and so we want to look at his wife's response within this text and then actually what happens after that that we can gain from other places in Scripture. And so Sarah's heart now, we see that this is the first time that, that she's hearing the promise actually spoken to her. We, we would think that she knew of the promise because we would hope that Abraham communicated to her and because their husband and wife and, and communication within a marriage is a, a vital thing. And so we're going to hope that he would do that, that she know. But this is the first time that we know of her actually hearing it. And it's interesting that she hears it. And, and a lot of times we think that maybe she was excluded and she's kind of overhearing, but it's not. They just, she was just in a different part of the conversation. Look at verse nine. It says, they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, so this is Abram. She's in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And so she hears this promise of God being told and she doesn't believe it. Like she hears it finally and she, she doesn't believe it. So what does she do? So she is the, um, midway through verse 10, it says, and Sarah was listening at the tent door behind them. Not that she was kind of gossiping in. This isn't one of those times where if you had brother and sister growing up and, and back when you could actually pick up the phone and hold the button down, you can listen in on the conversation or you can do it. That's not what's happening. She's not being excluded and just listening in on the conversation. She's not, in, she's not just coming into the conversation in, in kind of a deceptive way. She's included. She's in a different part. It's kind of like if you can in your kitchen in your house, if you can hear a conversation from the kitchen in the living room, that you're not necessarily standing there, but it's, it's able to be heard. And that's what's happening here. And she doesn't believe it. And in verse 12, it's actually, she said, it says she laughed to herself. So she laughed at the promise that was given to her by what God is going to do. But she laughed, she kept it to herself. And her doubt, her laughter was, was fueled by doubt, which is exactly the opposite of what happens in chapter 17 when Abraham, he falls on his face, he's laughing. But his laughter was not, was of, of disbelief, but it was of this idea that are you, it's this amazing thing that could happen. But Sarah's laughter is out of doubt. 
What we need to see in that, just a quick side note, is that so often we can have the exact same reactions come from a different aspect of our heart and have completely different implications. No one noticed. Abraham didn't notice. We see in verse 13 that the Lord said to Abraham, so why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child? Am I old? And so right then we need to understand, kind of like we've been talking about the past few weeks, that God knows everything, that he sees you, he knows you. There's no way you can kind of conceal this laughter under your breath and be like, <laughs> and, and, and he'll not know what's happening. Even if other people don't understand it, he sees through your self-laughter, straight into your doubt within your heart. He knows these things. She didn't believe it and God knew this. And then the Lord, in verse 14, asks the perfect question that we need to ask ourselves. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And that's something that you need to ask yourself, kind of going back to the first question we ask, is God limited in what he can do? Is there anything that's too hard for God to accomplish? Because that's what the problem was, that Sarah was thinking that there's no way he can accomplish this, what's happening. And the problem is that we, just like Sarah, tend to judge God's ability to act in our lives based on our own limitations instead of his sovereign power. Matthew Henry says it this way, says that human improbability often sets up in contradiction to the divine promise. The objections of sense are very apt to stumble and puzzle the weak faith even of a true believer. Do you believe that God can do what he says? Because so often we find ourselves hearing what God, reading his word, hearing what God is going to do in our lives and we put our own limitations on him and therefore there are things that are too hard just like Sarah's thinking. And then what happens then is we allow ourselves to fall in this trap that Sarah falls into because in verse 15 we see that Sarah denied it saying that I did not laugh for she was afraid. She was afraid because she had been caught out. Again, there's a time where, just like when we go back to Adam and Eve, their, their sin had been found out and they were afraid and they hid themselves. Well, Sarah's afraid and so she doesn't hide herself, but yet she covers a sin with another sin. And so don't allow yourself to fall into the trap of covering one sin with another. And so what she did, she compounded her doubt and disbelief by trying to cover it up with another lie and another lie. And then the cycle just continues. So we have to get back to this point to where we understand what God can do. And we don't want to put our limitations on him because he's not us. That he is stronger and he's powerful. He can accomplish what he's saying that he's going to do. And so we don't want to find ourselves laughing at this promise of God, laughing at what God said he's going to do. But we should actually then believe that he can do it because he is God. We don't need to put and judge God's ability to act based on our limitations. But Sarah doesn't stay in that doubt. Sarah doesn't stay in that doubt. If we, we look forward to in, in Hebrews chapter 11, I like, it says it a couple other places in scripture. I like Hebrews 11 just because it, it's tied in with this whole roll call of faith. But in Hebrews 11, 11, we kind of get a glimpse, of, a glimpse of Sarah's heart after this. So we, we just looked at her disbelief and her laughter of doubt about what God was going to do in the moment, in the situation when she first hears this promise uh, spoken to her. And now, all of a sudden later, we read in Hebrews eleven eleven it says that by faith, so by faith, believing, 
Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past age since she considered him faithful who had promised. And so when we look at that, what changed? What, what changed? Because we see in Hebrews 11 that she, received the faith, that she received the power to conceive through faith because she considered him to be faithful who had promised. And so all of a sudden now, what changed? Why did she all of a sudden erase her limitations of God being able to act in her life because of her and Abraham's age to now having faith that it's going to happen? I have to, I have to assume that it was Abraham ministering to her. That I have to assume that it was Abraham's spiritual leadership in his, in his, in his household. That he knew this doubt because God's asking him why she laughed. So he's known what's happening. And so I have to believe that there was conversations after that of how he had been faithful to Abraham, how Abraham had sought the Lord, experienced that. And then he's able to tell that to then Sarah. And then she's understanding that his limitations aren't like mine. And so eventually that doubt turned into belief and that lack of faith turned into faith. And then she was able to understand and believe that he was faithful who had promised. I believe it's in Romans 4 where it talks about the same concept that, that Abraham had overlooked his age and her barrenness and believed. And so Abraham was able to get past that. And so he was able to lead Sarah past that. And so what we need to do when we look at that is we need to understand that there's two things that need to happen within our families as Christians. And first is we need men to lead. It's been far too long that we've had men that are unwilling and seem unable to lead their family spiritually. We've been charged with the spiritual leadership of our houses and it's time that men step up and actually take this role. Not in this authoritative role to where you just demand everything, but in a leadership role where you love others and you serve them well and you teach them and you seek the Lord yourself first and then after you seek him and you experience him then you the overflow of that goes into your household and it affects your wife and affects your children we need to be marked by a place that has men that lead their family spiritually but we also have people within our family here at Watershed that are single mothers or at times that the, the, the father is deployed or he's out of the house and so we need to come up but in that women Single mothers, you don't need to settle for any man. You don't need to settle for someone that's going to talk a good game, but doesn't seek after the Lord, because if he's not seeking after the Lord, then he's not going to spiritually lead you well, and that's going to just leave you floundering, not knowing what to do, because you don't have someone else to work with. We need to step up when our soldiers are deployed and and help take care of their families and lead that way as they're gone because that's what we want to do as a family. We need men to step up and lead their families and we need to step up and help where that's not available at that time so that we can see families flourish because of spiritual leadership within the homes first. We have to step up as men. We have to believe that God can do what he's going to say that he's going to do, that he's not limited by our limitations and our inability to do things, but he can carry out what he has in our lives. 
what he's chosen for us, what he's gifted us, he can carry that out. And so we should work hard. We should push deeper into him. We should lead our families in understanding that. But it comes first out of a seeking of him in our own lives. And then as men, we can lead our families and we can help come alongside those that don't have that so that we can flourish. And then there will be an aspect of leadership, but of servant leadership within the Christian life that we display and the people see the difference in our lives. The final aspect of the Christian life that we see in Abraham is his lament for the lost. And so to kind of get this in the right spot, to get this in the right spot and and kind of get our hearts in this, we need to ask ourselves again a question just to, to, to gauge our heart. And the question is, do sinners deserve the wrath of God? Do people that are living in sin, people that are sinners, do they deserve to drink from the cup of God's wrath? And then how you answer that, what your heart immediately goes to then is this idea. So how you answer that in your mind is going to determine what kind of response you have to those who are lost in the world. And we see in this this great intercession of Abraham for Sodom. And it gives this idea that, that, that we can respond in prayer and intercession for the lost. And we do that because the answer is, do sinners deserve the wrath of God? Absolutely, yes, they do. But the difference is that those of us who are in Christ realize that, that we don't taste that wrath because Christ did for us. And so there are those people that are living in sin that don't know that and so we should be drawn in laments for them and we should pray for the lost in our city and that's exactly what we see Abraham doing. And the reason that we know this, the reason that we can answer, yes, they deserve wrath is because we know God's plans. We know who God is and that's the same thing with Abraham. We see in verse 17 and the Lord says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do seeing that surely seeing that Abraham surely shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I've chosen him. See, Abraham was a friend of God. I believe it's in James where it talks about that, that Abraham was blessed. He was a friend of God. And as a friend, you know what he's going to do. If you have friends, good, close friends in your life, you know what their schedule is. You know what's happening. And the same thing is for us when we are in God, when we understand and we know the Lord, then we know what is going to happen. We know what is going to happen. And so to respond like Abraham, we have to know the Lord and we have to know his will. But how do you do that? See, that's when the question comes, how do you know the Lord? How do you know his will? And the the answer is God's word. You know his truth. Matthew Henry again says that God's word then does us a good, does us good when it furnishes us with matter for prayer and excites, excites us to it. See, we should be knowing God's word. And we talked about this last week, understanding that we should have purposeful study of God's word because when we purposely study God's word, then we're gonna know who he is. And then that drives us then to have persistent prayer for other people. And so that knowing God's word, purposeful studying of God's word, knowing what's in there, knowing his will, knowing his plans for the world, knowing that indeed sinners do deserve the wrath of God, but knowing that he has sent his son despite that sin so that we could tell them, then that should draw us to a persistent prayer for God to save and intervene those people who are living in that sin. 
Abraham prayed. And if we're honest, he probably prays more for Lot's sake than for that of the people of Sodom. He pushes into the righteousness and justice of God as he prays, but notice that he doesn't exclude the other people. We can say that he's we, we can see that he's already saved these people when he went up against the people of Keterleomer, when he beat the kings with Keterleomer. He did that because Lot was captive. So he saved these people for Lot. And again, we can see that, that he's, he's praying that they would be saved or that God would not destroy them, not sweep away. If he could only find a certain amount of righteous people, if he could only find some there, then save them all because of their behalf. And so when we look at this, we see that, that he was asking God to save all people because some of his good people, but what we need to understand are some aspects of his prayer. And if you're following along on the notes, this is one of those times where I kind of switched up what I was doing. And so I combined a couple of these points. So I think on the notes it says six aspects of prayer, but I combined some of those. So if I don't get to six, then don't think there's something there that you've missed. It's just me kind of switching it up and complain and, 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 and combining several of these but the first thing is we work through the aspects of his prayer because then we can see how our prayer should be shaped towards the lost of our city we can look at these aspects and the first thing as we go through is that he has confidence then Abraham in verse 23 Abraham drew near and said so we see this idea that he is confident because he steps towards the Lord you have to have a certain amount of confidence in who you are to approach the Lord. It says that in James 4. This says, the resist the devil and he'll flee from you. And he says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. There's a confidence in drawing near to God. It's this posture of his prayer is one of confidence because he, he steps towards the Lord. He drew into him. He stepped in confidence toward him to pray and intercede for these people. We also see that then as we read on that there is a, is a faithful request. He's asking God to be faithful to who he is as he saves those people. In verse 24, he says, Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare for 50 righteous people who are in it? And then here's where he, he asks him to be faithful to. He says, So far be it from you to do such a thing who put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous may fare as the wicked. Far be that from you, shall not the judge, and here's the key part, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. And so what he's doing here is he's not saying that these people deserve this death. He's saying, no, that you're just enough to where you're not going to, are you, are you really going to wipe out the righteous that are with them because they're surrounded by the wicked? And, and what we need to understand here is Abraham has separated himself. He, this is when they split and Lot chose to go there. He knew that they were wicked and Abraham split himself away from them. He would have nothing to do with them. I mean, he resisted the king of Sodom. He said, I don't want anything from you. But yet now he see him praying for them. Will you not do what is just? Will you not save at least the righteous? He asked the Lord to be faithful to his request. And then verse 27 we kind of understand a little more about his posture. It's like maybe he's realizing how he's approaching God, but he answered in verse 27, Abraham says, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. And you kind of get this idea that he's like, wait a second. Here I am kind of approaching God in this very confident, maybe too confident way. And he says, whoa, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. Like you get this picture of him and you get this picture of the, the Lord high and lifted up. And then he puts himself against that and says, but I am dust 
and ashes. He knew the magnitude that he was doing when he was speaking to the Lord and he knew his role. It's kind of like you got to know your role. Well, in that, I am dust and ashes. And so even though we can be confident to approach the Lord, we have to be confident realizing that he is the Lord and he is greater than us. That he is greater than us. And so we must approach confidently, but confidently through humility, knowing that we are nothing apart from who we are in Christ. In verse 8, 28 on, we see that he has pity for these people. In verse 28, he says, suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city? And then he says, suppose 40 are found. And then 30. And then 20. And then ultimately all the way down to 10. And we see that he's having pity because he knows the reality of what's happening in Sodom. He knows that the people are wicked. He knows that there's not 50 righteous and so he still has pity on them. He still understands that they are lost, living in their sin. So he continues to go back to the Lord. And actually, it's like he, he and he really, he pushes the boundaries, I would say, of what you can ask the Lord and, and kind of say, will you not do this? Will you not do this? Will you not do this? It's like a kid going back to the parent over and over. And you, you ask for one thing and it just goes to the next and then to the next and to the next, all the while making it easier and easier but we see in that that he has pity on these people he knows that what the conditions that he just got God to agree to the this this mercy that God is is showing he knows that they can't reach that level so he asks him to go again we also see in those same verses 28 through 33 that there's a boldness that he continued to ask even though the Lord was granting the mercy that he was calling on that that his prayer for the lost was being answered because he's saying no there's less and less every time but he had boldness to go so we can confidently yet humility approach the throne of God and approach the Lord through our prayer for those lost with boldness knowing that God is going to do what God desires and so we should pray for those people again Matthew Henry to quote Matthew Henry about prayer says that we must pray not only for ourselves but for others also, for we are members of the same body. And so we shouldn't just pray. And if we're honest, if we're honest, if, I, I don't think this is just me, but so often our prayers for the lost in our city fall to the bottom of the list, don't they? That so often we have troubles and we have problems that are happening and that so often that's at the top of the list. And then these people that are lost in their sin, they get dropped onto the bottom and sometimes not even prayed for at all because, well, after all, they're living in that sin. But this is not what we see through Abraham's lament. This is not an aspect of the Christian life that we should have. We should desire to pray for those people to come to the knowledge of the Lord because that's what God wants to happen. We see in Second Peter 3 that the Lord is patient and he's slow so that everyone might come to repentance. In 2 Peter 3, 9. So that everyone might come to repentance. And then Paul teaching Timothy how to lead the church. In, in 1 Timothy 2 says that, that, that God desires for all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the Lord. And so how can we be a true Christian and an aspect of Christian life if we don't have lament for the people that are lost of our city when God desires for them to be saved? That he desires for all people to repent, to come to the knowledge. In fact, he's slow in fulfilling what he's going to do so that they might have time. 
And so how often should we be praying for these people, lamenting for them in their sin? Because of that. Like we can boldly and confidently approach the Lord and say, this is who you are. Shall the judge of the world do what's just? Save people because of who you are. You sent your son. God, just show them who Christ is so that they can come to you and repent. And what we need to understand as we kind of wrap this up is this idea of sin. And so often we are too quick to condemn the sin of these people in Sodom and Gomorrah. That so often we think that there's no way that they should have been left out of that. And so we think about the sin, the reality of the sin when we look at these stories in Genesis 18 and 19, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and a story that's mentioned over and over again in the Bible about God's wrath and pouring out on sin. That's the example that's set here for the rest of Scripture. But so often we look at the sin that they were living in and we forget how quick God was to extend mercy. If there were just 10, first 50, 45, 30, 20. Now if there's just 10 people that were righteous in Sodom, God, how quick to mercy he was. And see, often we, you, you spin this, and the Sodom and Gomorrah stories spin in this, this idea that cast God is just this vengeful, wrathful God, and he is on sin, but we forget that he was so quick to extend mercy if there would just have been 10. And when we look at this idea of sin, we need to realize that first, that sin is unique to all men. That's what Romans 3, 23 says, for the, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, for all those that were living in Sodom and Gomorrah, those that are living in sin in our communities now, whether they know it or they don't, we too were born into that sin. We have all fallen short of the glory of God because we are all sinners. Sin is unique to all people. The difference is that, that once you're in Christ, you realize that, that the wrath of God was poured out on Christ instead of you. Because we also see that not only is all people sinners and fallen short of the glory of God, but we see that all sin equals death. That's what Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. Like that's the, the God's wrath is punished. Punishment on sin. That only in Christ, that's what Romans 6, 23 finishes with. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ. And so that we are all sinners, it's unique to that. We've all fallen short of that glory but yet there has been someone that has been provided that God has placed his son in our stead so that he could pour out his just and righteous wrath on sin, on our sin, but it was through Christ's sacrifice instead of us. And so sin is paid for. The wrath of God is poured out on sin. The, the difference is in Sodom and Gomorrah, that wrath was poured out on them because they did not repent. And so the wrath, they paid the punishment of their sin, which was God's wrath themselves, instead of knowing and repenting that in Christ, he took that wrath that we deserved. And so that's what we should do. We should see these people in our community. We should pray for them. That God, just allow them to see the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, and know that it doesn't matter, that we didn't somehow fix ourselves, and so therefore we're not sin, but you sent your son while we were sinners so that he might die for us, so that your wrath might be justly poured out on him instead of us. 
so that we'd be clothed in his righteousness instead of our tarnished humanity. But we can always pray. See, some of you might have people that you've been talking to and they just, they just quit. And I found this quote by Charles Spurgeon. It's a little longer than I typically like to read, but Charles Spurgeon, is a, a, he always often gets it right. And so in, in talking about this, ways that we can always pray for the lost and have just lament over their sin, it says that if they will not hear you, talking about sinners, if they will not hear you speak, they cannot prevent your praying. Do they jest at your exhortions, exhortations? They cannot disturb you at your prayers. Are they far away so they cannot reach them? Your prayers can reach them. Have they declared that they will never listen to you again nor see your face? And there's some of you that you have people in your life that are at that. They're saying, I know what you're going to tell me. I understand. I don't want to hear it anymore. Just stop. I don't want to hear about this. You've told me all you do is preach to me. I don't want to hear that. And Spurgeon reminds us that they tell you they will never listen again nor see your face. Never mind. Why? Because God has a voice which they must hear. Speak to him and he will make them feel. So they can't just push you back because we have the power through prayer because God can speak to people's hearts in ways that we can't. They can push us aside, but they can't push back against the voice of God. And though they now treat you despitefully, rendering evil for your good, Spurgeon reminds us to follow them with your prayers and never let them perish for lack of your supplications. And so is that where you stand with the people that are lost? Do you lament over their sin that they're living in? Yes, they deserve the wrath of God. But are you praying for them? Are you praying that we would see the power of God in their life? Because sometimes it's these people that are grabbed hold, that, that God grabs hold of so tightly. Their, their transformation is so amazing that God can do some amazing things through their life because of what he did in their life. It's what happened with Apostle Paul. Would you have prayed for the Apostle Paul's salvation when he was killing Christians? Probably not. We would have ran and hid in fear. Say, how can this be happening? Instead, we should be praying for that salvation because we can see that that would be an amazing display of God's sovereign power in changing and transforming someone's life. And I pray, I pray that here at Watershed we would be a family of believers that are marked by our love for other people and how we display hospitality. That we would love others well through extending hospitality even when we don't feel like it. We extend hospitality into the normal rhythms of our lives. I pray that we would be a family of believers that sparked, that, that's marked by strong spiritual leadership of our men within our families. That we would have men that would stand up and actively seek the Lord and lead their families well because that will show someone something different that we live around. And I pray that we would be a people marked by lament over the sin of the people that are lost and hopeless in our community, that they would see and hear the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ has come to die for us, to take our place, God, that, we would, that we would be people that, that are persistent in our prayer, 
for those people that are lost, that we could see the fruit of God's salvation, that we would see death to life, that we'd be persistent in our prayer, we'd be purposeful in our study, and that we would be passionate in our praise when we see God impact the lives of these people that have lived in sin, unrepentant, and then they hear the gospel message through our hospitality, through our lives, through what they see our men leading in their families, and they would know that there's something out there. I pray that we would be marked by that. Pray that we would love others well, lead our families strongly, and lament over the loss in our community and pray that God would impact their lives. Will you pray with me? Father God, I just thank you that God, that you've given us such an amazing example through your servant Abraham. God, that you called. God, I just pray that, that we would people be people that are marked by love for others. That's shown through how we display hospitality, even if we didn't plan it, God. Even if it was a, a bad time in our life, God, that we would extend hospitality because that's what we were called to do. It's an aspect of the Christian life that we should have. And I pray that we would love others well. God, I pray that we would have men that would lead, that our men right now would step up and lead their families. God, that we would not sit back and allow that responsibility to pass to someone else, but we would step up and own that responsibility. God, that we would lead our family well. God, I just pray that we would be people who care so deeply for the lost in our community and that we would be persistent in our prayer for them. God, that we would call on you and be bold and confident as well as humble as we approach you so that you might save some to bring glory to your name through your actions in their life by sending your son to die for them. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.